I have always wished that my Spanish was better. Living in Southern California and going to Mexico a lot for surfing, weekend trips, stuff like that, it's just very handy. I took three years of it in high school, but I really didn't learn that much from the books. I basically only got really good at asking various types of people where the library is located, which turns out to be not a phrase you use that often when you're on vacation. Rosetta Stone is a much more organic and easy way to learn a new language because it really immerses you in that language. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop, and also it has an app. Rosetta Stone is the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Like I said, it's fast language acquisition because it really immerses you in the language. There's no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language. They also have speech recognition features like True Accent, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's also an amazing value. They offer a lifetime membership, which includes all 25 languages, which is perfect for any and all trips you might have in your future with various languages you might want to learn. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, other world listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com otherworld today. This episode is brought to you by Harry's. Harry sent me a razor starter kit recently to try, and I put it to use very quickly because I keep myself clean shaven. In fact, I pretty much shave every single day because I have lots of facial hair. It grows back very quickly, and it's also really thick, and it hurts a lot when I shave normally, with a bad razor at least. So I've been using Harry's razors for like a week now. They're very nice. It's a five-blade razor, and I have to say, it really does effortlessly shave through my normally very annoying facial hair. It doesn't hurt one bit, no tugging, anything like that. And it stayed sharp the entire time as well. I'm very impressed so far. It also has kind of a good weight to it. It's like heavier than normal. I don't know. It's like, it's just got a good weight to it. I really like that. I didn't know I liked it before, but now I know I like it. I also really liked the shaving cream just because it smells really good. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of other big brands. Harry's has a customizable delivery option for scheduled refills as low as $2, half of what you pay from other big brands. Don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com otherworld. That's harrys.com otherworld for a $3 trial set. Folks, before we get this episode started, I just want to announce one more time, the Patreon for Otherworld is officially live. We have bonus episodes, we have a Discord, and we have all sorts of exciting things coming out. If you want to hear more of this podcast, you can hear it right now. You just have to sign up and become a patron of Otherworld. It also gives you a chance to support this show. And quite frankly, we really need your support because this takes a lot of effort to make a show like this. And we're pretty much on our own. This is an independent project and we truly do need the support. So even if you just want to chip in, it would be very meaningful. And you could do that at patreon.com slash otherworld. Right now, I already have up there some archived Instagram live interviews that I did. I have an interview with Wendy's daughter, Harmony, where we go deeper into that entire series. 
I also have a bonus episode, an unreleased one about somebody who saw a UFO in San Francisco. And most recently, I have an entire episode with the band Beach Fossils, where we're chatting, talking about the paranormal, talking about Otherworld, and also talking about some of their own experiences and what they think of all this stuff. So thank you so much for your continued support, and let's get this episode started. Welcome to Otherworld. I'm your host, Jack Wagner. This episode revolves around a man named Rob, who is currently a software engineer and refers to himself as an atheist. Rob grew up with a very rare and debilitating disease called CIDP. And part of this story involves the very unique perspective that he had as a person who spent so much of their childhood in hospitals and going through very adult challenges, facing the possibility of death at a very young age. Luckily, Rob ended up making a miraculous recovery that nobody expected could happen. And Rob ended up experiencing some things during and after that that scared him for years to come. And his family also witnessed some strange things as well, but they had a very different way of interpreting it. I think this story has a lot of layers and I'm sure a lot of people will find different ways to interpret it. And that's why I like it so much. This show is many things, but primarily to me, it's a show about how these strange, mysterious events end up affecting the people who witness it. And in this story, it had very different, perhaps opposite effects on the people involved. And I think it's very fascinating how different those two reactions are. So I'll let you hear it for yourself. This episode is called The Miracle Child and you're listening to Otherworld. Well, my name is Rob. I'm from Naperville, Illinois. I'm 33, uh, currently a software developer. So my story really begins uh, at the very beginning, uh, around one and a half years old. I basically was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, which is a mouthful. So the acronym is CIDP for short. Um, It's a very rare condition. Um, I think there's statistics of it where If you were to do the math, there's like 8,000 total people in the entire United States that have it. Um, So when I was first diagnosed, they actually couldn't figure it out for a long time because of how rare it is. Um, So initially, uh, from the description of my parents, what happened was as a toddler, I was, you know, normal in every sense of the word. I was initially able to walk, was starting to, to move around and things. Um, but I, I got like a normal cold or flu. And then once I got sick that first time, uh, my mom slowly noticed that I started to fall a lot and trip. And then eventually I just wasn't able to stand up at all. And that was, you know, the warning signs for them to get me checked out. 
from there, I actually began losing more and more functionality of my body. So first it was my legs, then it was my arms, then it was pretty much everything from the neck down um, to the point where I was hospitalized for six months because the fear was that my diaphragm would actually stop working so I wouldn't be able to breathe anymore. Luckily, that didn't happen, and I was able to get out of the hospital eventually, but there was even a story in in one of the local papers about what had happened to me and my condition to sort of help support my parents, um, which led to someone graciously hosting me to be part of Shriners Children's Hospital of Chicago. They're a great organization. They help a lot of kids, and pretty much they were like my second family. I had the same doctors from when I was two to 20, so... They literally got to see me grow up. So from there, basically, I was wheelchair-bound. They finally correctly diagnosed me. There were a few other things that they thought it might be first, um, but then they eventually arrived to the conclusion that I had CIDP. And from that point forward, I was in a wheelchair. Um, From what my mom and dad told me um, of my childhood, they basically said every doctor they saw, you know, was telling them, you know, he'll never walk again. You need to be ready to support him throughout his entire life because he's gonna gonna be wheelchair bound and that's that's just his life from now on. Um, Now I was was raised Catholic, um, but currently I'm I'm actually an atheist, (laughs) Uh, which I know is is hard to believe, but my reasoning for that is, is actually based on my experiences themselves. You know, throughout my entire childhood and into my adult life, you know, I was, I was surrounded by these other kids that, you know, had it worse than me. Or, you know, and, you know, these are great kids, and some of them were literally just in accidents, and their entire future is stripped from them. And here I am, going in every single time, and every single time getting better and better, and having to live with the fact that, you know, why, why was I picked to be better? And then these kids were were chosen to suffer. And that never really sat right with me. Um, I felt if, you know, truly there was a benevolent higher power, it it wouldn't allow for something like that to happen. (laughs) Um, And and that's sort of why I, I, you know, I am an atheist now is it's just, it's it's hard for me to, to cope. It almost feels like survivor's guilt. Um, I've, I've heard people describe that before where you know, why did I live and this other person died? It, it's similar in a fashion of why did I get better, but these other kids have to, to live their life with these disabilities. And, and so that's sort of where my beliefs come from. So what's interesting about my time, you know, in a wheelchair is that because it happened when I was so young, that was just that was just life, you know? Like, I know a lot of people who transition from, you know, what most people consider normal, like being able to walk and function normally, and then having to go into a wheelchair, you know? Like, people say it's like, oh, it's the struggle. But for me, like, since I remembered, <laughs> I had always been in a wheelchair. Um, but I, I never liked being in the wheelchair, I guess I could say. Um, I would always try and figure out how to be mobile without it. So initially when I first started moving, I w- it was literally just crawling. Like I guess 
army crawling would be like the best comparison where you're primarily moving through just pulling yourself with your arms. And then as my condition started to get better and I got sort of mobility back in my upper legs and my hips, I was able to sort of like crawl on all fours. Like you'd almost see like a baby do. And that was my primary mode of transportation. Like at least when I was, you know, in my house and not like in public um, until I was about, I want to say like maybe 10 or 11. And from there that like right around that time frame is when it, it, I can't even describe it as like a motivation where, you know, like I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. Like I'm going to stand up. It was just sort of like almost an instantaneous, like feeling like, just do it. Like, just stand, you know, like, I can't really describe it as saying like, it's something I pushed myself to do. It sort of just popped into my head. Like, we're going to try this and you'll be able to stand up. And from there, that's when I made the attempt to stand for the first time. And it, it wasn't very long, mind you, it was maybe 10, 15 seconds at most, but going from not being able to do anything to being able to stand um, was obviously like a huge milestone um, because once that was there, then I could start using walkers and other like mobility devices. And as I was beginning to start to walk normally, I was able to gain enough strength back and my condition continued to improve to where I could just walk normally. So over time, as I got better, I did have to get a couple of surgeries Uh, my ankles. And it was actually a result of basically things coming back that I had never used before. So certain things, my feet got stronger than other sides. So they had to like correct it basically. Um, And I remember like, I just, I hate hospitals. I even hate hospitals to this day. And so I went in for the surgery. They basically said, okay, you'll need to be in the hospital for three days post-op for recovery to, you know, to watch you and make sure you're okay. And I went in for, you know, they, they performed the surgery. I woke up the next day and I was like, I want to go home. (laughs) And they're like, well, you you can't go home. You know, you need to be here, et cetera. And I was like, no, I want to go home. And so the head nurse was like, okay, well, I think it was like appeasement. Like I was 16. I was an annoying teenager. They're like, okay, we'll just, we'll go through the motions just so that we can say like, nah, you got to stay here. So they take my vitals, they like check my blood work, um, et cetera. And they're like, we have never seen someone recover so fast from a surgery ever. Uh, Like your vitals are like almost to like pre-op normal levels. Like, yeah, you can actually go. And like, they've never seen that before. And so they, they called my parents and my parents were actually mad. They're like, you're supposed to be there for three days. We can't come get you. I'm like, no, you need to come, <laughs> you need to come get me. I'm ready to go. Um, and that happened twice actually. So I had one surgery when I was 14 and then I had a second surgery when I was 17 and the same thing happened when I was 17. Um, because again, I, I did not want to be there. I wanted to go home immediately. And again, the next day they checked my vitals. They're like, this is like, you're good. Like, just tell us if you have any weird things happen when you go home, but like you're, you're all set. 
And I got to go home basically the next day after like a major ankle surgery. So early, early on into my recovery, um, this was the point where I, I had function of my, my arms and hands. Um, I was in a car ride where my, my grandmother and my family were in. And uh, basically we were discussing the fact that I was, I was basically motivated where I said, you know, I'm going to walk again. And she had mentioned, oh, it's, it's funny that you say that because the Virgin Mary told you that you would walk again. And that was the first time she had told me this story. But apparently when I was four, I had seen an entity above my bed, which she equated to the Virgin Mary, that told me I would walk again. So I, I don't really know what what to make of that particular experience, but... Shortly after, uh, around the time I was six or eight, I experienced something in my room um, where basically it was related to my closet. And whenever my closet door was open at night, um, basically if I was to wake up and look into it, it would be pitch black, but like blacker than black. Like the, for perspective, the closet's not like a huge closet. It's not a walk-in closet. It's maybe three feet deep. And then the clothes rack is maybe halfway into that. So the clothes are fairly forward. So you would be able to make them out. But in these experiences that I had, it was so dark, you wouldn't even be able to see like the clothes or any of the objects in the closet. And I remember distinctly that if I was awake and looking in into that darkness, it felt like it wasn't necessarily fear as much as like actual dread. And I, I think there's like a big distinction between those. And at this time, obviously I wasn't fully mobile. So I was, uh, I was able to crawl, but I wasn't able to like run away. <laughs> so, I would go out of my way to literally pull myself out of bed from with my arms like face forward onto the floor and I would crawl to my parents' room and they had one of those larger beds with where like it's raised off the ground enough where I could actually go underneath it and rather than be in my room I would sleep on the floor underneath their bed just to feel safe um and I did that probably four or five times I experienced that. And after a while, <laughs> my parents were upset with me. They're like, you're too old to be scared of the dark. You know, you need to sleep in your own room. And obviously I was upset about that because <laughs> I was like, there's something in there. I don't want to sleep in there. Um, but they're like, you just have to deal with it. This is part of growing up, you know, like it is what it is. Like, it, it felt like I was being watched and it wanted to do something to me. Like, I don't know what, but it, it, it felt like something was stalking me in a way. Like, it was just, it was terrifying, like fight or flight response. And it was flight for me, <laughs> um, where I would literally just leave the room. It was different, yeah. Um, like, where, like, you feel like yourself shivering like to your core where it's like, it, you know, 
the feeling where like you throw covers over your, like I would actually like pull the blankets over my face and like try to hide from this, whatever it was like that kind of terrifying. And, you know, after my parents had started to, you know, say like, be a big boy basically and tell me to sleep in my room, the only way, like if it happened again, the only way I could feel better was I would, I would still get out of bed, like still crawl across the floor and I would, I would shut the closet door. If the door was open, I could not sleep. And even like, it affected me so much that, you know, I'm 33 now and I was like six then. I can't sleep in rooms where the closet doors open to this day because of what I experienced. And, and to put it in perspective too, the way my bed was positioned in the room was basically the foot of my bed faced directly in front of the closet. So like if I wake up, it's like basically like looming right at the base of my bed. <laughs> and so like you just you just feel like this thing is is like watching and like trying to like wash over you. And so all you can do is sort of like hide under the sheets and like try to basically try to protect yourself. And so once I started shutting the door to the closet um, and it became a habit, I didn't really have those same feelings again for a long time. And this sort of leads into like the first major, I want to say like all family experience where it's like my mom, my dad and myself are involved. And it still involves a closet though. <laughs> so, um, my mom has uh, OCD and her compulsion is, is cleanliness. Um, so she will go out of her way to like completely clean the house top to bottom. Like she, she literally called it like clean the closets where she will take everything out, take all the racks off, like wash the floor, wash the walls, like everything. And uh, for, for context, my room had hardwood floors, including in the closet. So when they were taking everything out, and I was, I was about 14 at this point for like time of reference, they said, uh, <laughs> they said the, the closet smelled like pee. And they literally told me, did you pee in your closet? I was like, of course I didn't pee in my closet. Like, what are you talking about? And so this smell was, was like very prominent. So my mom fully cleans the closet, lets it dry, comes back, the smell's still there. They do this two more times, smell doesn't go away. So my dad is, my dad's family is also Catholic. And while he's not practicing Catholic, I would say like of my immediate family, he's probably the most religious. So over the years, um, because of my condition and like the community we're in, I got a lot of like religious artifacts like crosses and Bibles and, you know, things that people thought were like to help me pray or to pray for me, etc. And one of those things was a, a picture of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> so my dad on a whim decided to put that picture inside the closet and like let it sit overnight. And then the next day we went to the closet and the smell was gone. And then we noticed that 
the the picture had like a new like tear coming down the cheek of the Virgin Mary from like sitting in the closet, which wasn't there before. <laughs> and so and so like that was a, a big one for the family. We were like, okay, that's weird. Like that is that is strange. Like <clears throat> so the picture didn't have it at all. So it was just a picture of Mary with Jesus. And then the next day we got we pulled the picture out and then there was a tear coming down her eye, down her cheek. Okay, we have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. Folks, springtime is here and it might be time to clean out the closet and finally update your wardrobe. Quince has you covered with timeless pieces that never got a style. You'll have them in your closet forever. Quince has all the essentials for men and women and everything is made from high quality materials, which is very important to me. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes savings on to us. And like I mentioned, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I recently went on a little shopping spree myself. I got a chore jacket, a Mongolian cashmere cardigan, and a quilted jacket. Basically stuff that I could just throw on top of the normal old t-shirts that I wear every day to make myself look a lot more presentable and fashionable when I need to. I also got some new sheets for our bed. They have so many to choose from. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash otherworld for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince, Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash otherworld to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash otherworld. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to be really bad at keeping track of my finances. A very stupid part of me believed that if I just don't look at my bank accounts and my credit card statements, the money will all still be there, even if I spent it on stupid stuff that month. Well, that's not how it works. I learned the hard way. It's quite the opposite. Usually, when I finally did look, I'd notice that there was some subscription I'd been paying for that I forgot to cancel or I got overcharged for something and it's too late to fix. But now I use Rocket Money to keep track of all of that for me so I don't have to worry. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so you could grow your savings. Rocket Money finds all of your bills and subscriptions for you, lays them out, and gives you the option to cancel them automatically or it can negotiate a lower price for you. I recently tested this out on my internet bill and they were able to negotiate a lower price for me. I saved like $300 doing this. If you're like me and you get scared checking your accounts, Rocket Money might be your savior. It's nice having everything in one place and under control. I promise you're gonna be very happy once you finally do it. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com otherworld. That's rocketmoney.com otherworld. Springtime is here. I've recently had all of my windows open, letting in the breeze, the smell of fresh flowers blooming all over my neighborhood. This is what a house should smell like. 
It should not smell like your cat's litter box. Thankfully, Pretty Litter makes that very easy. Nothing beats Pretty Litter's ability to instantly trap odor. It's ultra-absorbent, lightweight, low-dust, and one six-pound bag works for up to a month. It also gives me peace of mind knowing Pretty Litter's crystals change color to indicate early signs of potential illness in my cat, like urinary tract infections, kidney issues, and more. This is especially useful now that my cat is hanging out constantly by our screen door, getting visitations from coyotes, raccoons, squirrels, other cats, who knows what else. So it's very helpful knowing that if he picks up anything weird from them, I'll notice right away in his litter. When I first got my cat Merlin, I tried using the cheap cat litter that comes in those huge, giant bags from the pet store. That stuff is awful. Some of it smells worse than the smells it's supposed to be covering up. It does not have to be like that. There's a better way to live. There's no reason for your house to smell like your cat's litter box. If your house smells like a cat's litter box, that's on you. That's not on your cat. Pretty Litter is amazing. You should give it a try. Go to prettylitter.com slash otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. That's prettylitter.com slash otherworld to save 20% on your first order and get a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So after the the closet incident happened, um, basically things started to happen in the house where it was, it was for the most part, it was like, ob- it didn't happen to people directly, but it was like objects. So like objects would fall off walls, things would fall off the ceiling. Um, and what's interesting about it, so uh, the layout of my parents' house was basically there's a small hallway, which was my room, my brother's room, and then across the hall was um, like a bathroom, like a shared bathroom. And then adjacent to that, on the other side of the bathroom wall is my, my parents' master bed, a bathroom. So most of the events that have happened since that point have all been in like the same area of my room where the closet was, but it's been like in the hallway or like in my parents' bathroom or in that bathroom. Um, so the first thing that happened, I was probably about 15 at the time, and my mom had this collective or like a collectible spice jar rack. So it was like this like artist had made like these like drawn spice jars and then it had this wooden rack that was what you would put them on as to display. So my mom had that nailed to the wall in the same hallway. Now we were on the other, it was both of us were in the house at the time, but we were on the opposite house, uh, side of the house. We were talking and we had just heard this huge crash and we're like, what was that? So we go over there and there are broken spice jars all over the floor. And the rack that they were on was like hanging basically by one nail only. So it was like a slant. And obviously my mom's upset because like this was her like collectible thing. So she's cleaning up that. But I, I was like, well, how did this happen? And Basically, one of the nails, like the nail side that fell off, the nail itself was still in the wall, but it was bent at like a perfect 90 degree angle. Like something bent the nail, but not the other one. And obviously this this spice rack is not like overloaded with weight. (laughs) And my dad is uh, in HVAC, so he knows like how to find studs and things like that. So it was just weird. 
sort of like, well, how did that happen? And this is when sort of like the family joke of like, oh, it was the ghost came up because I was like, oh, the ghost did this. <laughs> like the same ghost like that we had before. The nail is still in the wall, but it's bent 90 degrees. And it, it's not like, because we had to pull the nail out of the stud afterwards to get to fix the wall, basically, because my mom was like, well, I have to throw this all out now because all my jars are broken. <laughs> so... So when my dad pulled it out, like he had to actually pull the whole nail out. And he even said, like, how does that even happen? Like, it, it didn't make any sense to any of us. There was no damage to the plaster. There was no damage to the stud. There was no damage to the wall. It was just like the nail itself that was hanging on was bent. Like, I, and it, it was literally like 90 degrees. So to give context to, like, these, these events don't happen very often, like there's big gaps of time when these things happen, but they're, they're all like localized in the same area. And, and like I, like I um, had mentioned before, none of it ever seems malicious outside of breaking our stuff. Like, that's kind of malicious, (laughs) but like, it doesn't seem like it's trying to hurt us. It's more like mischievous. Like it wants us to like give it attention almost when stuff happens. And so the next thing that happened was actually in my my parents' bathroom, which is like basically the opposite wall of the bathroom that's next to my room. And they used to have one of those old ceiling lights with like the plastic dome covers. And so I'm not sure if you've used those or seen those before, but they're designed in such a way where like you push it in and it's and it's set. Like, unless you purposely go up there and like twist it out. So my, like my family is nothing but short people. Like I'm five, five, my dad's the same height. My mom's like five, three. And the only way for us to be able to reach this light would be to like stand on the toilet or something like that. And it was positioned in a way where it was almost directly above the toilet. So there were a couple of times where someone would be using the toilet in that bathroom and this light cover would just fall, like fall on them. <laughs> and it's it's not like, it's not a heavy object. It's very light. So it's not like something that could degrade over time or like you would have to like physically impact it in some way in order for this to come out. And it happened three or four times till to the point where my parents eventually replaced the light because they thought I was a problem with the light. So they replaced it with like those LEDs, like where they're like recessed into the ceiling. So nothing can possibly fall out. That happened a couple of times and it, it wasn't like in quick succession either. This was like, might happen one month and then it could be six months later or it could be two years later, but it was always the same light and it would be the same thing. In fact, if I remember correctly, they actually changed the light for a different light that was like the same style where it had a plastic cover and that one also did it after replacing it so it it was basically like the same situation a couple of times that was like the last major thing i remember happening before i moved out of my parents house and there was about three or four years where i was on my own i don't remember anything happening because, I mean, I was working a lot. I was never home anyways. Um, So there wasn't really a lot of time for me to experience anything on my own. 
Um, but during COVID, I was working in the hospitality industry and they uh, laid us off, <clears throat> basically. So I was in a position where I had to move back home. So I've been home now for like two years, two and a half years. And things have started again. <laughs> and so um, prior to talking to you, I had asked my mom when I had sent you the email, I said, hey, do you remember if anything with the ghost happened when I wasn't here? And she's like, why are you asking me this question? And I was like, I, I just want to know, like, if I was, because I told her, I was like, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the, the, the thing that's haunted and it's not the house. And she's like, no, I don't remember anything happening since you've been gone. So about, I want to say it's probably like five months ago. So my, this is back in the bathroom that's closest to my old room. They had one of those big vanity mirrors that's like, you know, a 60, 80 pound mirror. That mirror has been hanging in that bathroom for like 15 years, like a long time. So about six months ago, uh, it was about like two in the morning. I hear this big crash and my mom wakes up early because she works for an elementary school. So she wakes up early. She does like some cursory cleaning before she leaves for work. So I was like, well, maybe something happened. So I like open the door right away to my room. And I'm like, what happened? And I just see glad, like mirror shards all over the floor. And I was like, what happened? And so then I hear both of my parents come running at this point towards me. And they're like, did you like what? Ha-? They asked me what happened. So no one was near this bathroom. I technically was because of my room. I basically I'm using my brother's room now, my brother's old room. And I was like, my door was closed. And I heard this and I thought something happened to you. I was just checking to see if you're okay. And so like we're cleaning up the glass and basically the way the mirror was anchored to the wall is it was like one of those heavy duty wall anchors where it's like metal. And then like it contacts another metal like lip that's like basically like 10 screws across the whole thing. Like it's designed to hold the heavy weight. Basically the adhesive that hooked up to the anchor that was on the back of the mirror that hooks into the anchor on the wall was completely, it just like gave out. Like it didn't look like, you know, like if something gives out over time and it's like rips, it was like completely clean. And so the anchor for the mirror was still attached to the wall when we found it. And the mirror just completely detached from it and fell onto the floor. I I know people might say, well, you know, it's 15 years old, but I work, I work in, I worked in hotels for 10 years. And obviously we have bathrooms with huge mirrors on them. When they set up mirrors like that, they are designed to where they don't come down unless you purposely like remodel and take it down yourself. Like there's no way that that stuff, because obviously like, that's a huge liability. <laughs> like if a mirror falls on someone when they're in the bathroom. But like this, this looked like it was a clean separation. Like there was no residue on the anchor part that was still on the wall. It was like completely clean metal. And it was just like, it was like, poop and just fell on the floor. There was actually a, a big shard of glass left over that had the line of adhesive that was attached to the anchor 
that was like completely still there, but like separated. And there was no adhesive on the actual anchor itself. So it's not like the adhesive disappeared. It was just like it completely detached from the metal part and fell. Yeah, I, I, not an expert for sure, but I am I am fairly certain it is not designed to do that. And and since then they've gotten a replacement mirror, and they even asked the guys that installed it. They're like, "Hey, is this something that frequently happens?" And they're like, "No." And they just automatically were like, "Oh, they must have done a bad job then, because there's no way that should have happened." And it's like. It was up for like 15 years. Like, I don't think it would just magically, like if it was a bad job, I would have assumed it would have taken a lot less time than 15 years to fall. So I was able to talk to Rob's dad about some of this stuff. Originally, I wanted to talk to him just about the things that went down in the house, but I was also very curious to hear his interpretation of everything because Rob certainly alluded to the fact that his family had very different interpretations of some of the things that happened while he was growing up and related to his recovery. And I found it very interesting. I think that there were some things that came up in this conversation that I didn't expect. And I even think that there were some things that came up that Rob might have not really even known about himself, believe it or not. And I'm not sure if that ended up changing the way he thinks about things, but I think there were aspects that he maybe had never even heard before. So this is my conversation with Rob's dad. Basically, I just wanted to ask you, this whole Virgin Mary thing, do you remember when that happened? And if so, how did you hear about it? The, um, <clears throat> there was a, a church in, uh, I forget what town it was, uh, Berwyn or Cicero, and it's a Greek Orthodox church, and there was uh, a sightings of a, crying Virgin Mary portrait, an oil portrait. And um, they said the tears would come out red. And if you uh, went to the, uh, oh, I forget what they call them, the Orthodox minister, um, they would take a Q-tip and rub it on the portrait, partially of the tear, and then they would anoint the individual and it would give them, you know, some hope or strength or possibly cause a, or create a miracle. So uh, we figured it was, it was a beautiful thing. Uh, we really had nothing to lose. So, uh, and that was probably, I forget when Robert was probably about two years old. So yeah, we visited the church and uh, I think we actually had a uh, copy of the actual portrait. And it was pretty, pretty everybody just kind of just felt chills down their spine when you visited it. There was quite a few people there. It was pretty interesting. Wait, so, okay. I didn't know about that. Yeah, Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah. And now I'm realizing my question was vague too. So, okay. So that was a new Virgin Mary thing. What about, he told me that his grandmother told him that he saw the Virgin Mary in his room at night and she told him that he would walk again. Okay. Yeah. Robert said that too. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, his grandparents are very religious and so are we. Um, yeah, I, I remember that too. That was a while ago. When did that happen? And can you tell me about when you heard it? Um, well, about the same time. Um, I want to say, you know, he was he was still uh, pretty young. So it had to be, it was in this house. It had to be, he was probably two or three years old. And, and what, can you just tell me, he was pretty 
quiet about it. Can you tell me your version of that story? Oh, kind of the same thing that um, I think that, you know, he would be sleeping and he would he would wake up and tell us that he felt like he had a, a visitation. Um, and I'm trying to remember if <clears throat> this was before or after we visited the Greek Orthodox Church, um, probably about the same time. You know, it might have, well, I, I can't remember uh, the actual account if it was before or after, but kind of along the same lines where, you know, he felt uh, that, yeah, he was being visited and, yeah, that, um, you know, he was given hope by, you know, Mother Mary. Did he ever tell you this? Um, he spoke to, no, not, well, not so much me directly, but more so to his, his mother and his, you know, his grandma. Um, yeah, do you know what he would say to them? Or like said to either his mom or his grandparents, like when he would wake up, like what, what he saw, you know? Um, yeah, no, I don't remember the exact specifics of it. Um, it was a long time ago. <laughs> that was 30 years ago. I don't know if you would mind, but I know your wife is camera shy, but do you, would you mind asking her if she remembers to like refresh your memory of like what he said? Let me go ask her and see if she remembers more about it than I do. Yeah, she doesn't have to come on camera or anything, but if she remembers, maybe she could jog your memory. Sorry, our family's a little <laughs> kind of round trip like this all the time with everything. No worries. I mean, I don't know if you could hear that at yeah. all. But like, he said he doesn't remember. Like, basically, I'm. was your grandma still alive? Yeah, she's actually still alive today. Oh, okay. Yeah. It would be worth... I might be able to convince her. I, I could try calling her. Or you should give her a call it, and see what she remembers from it. Half. I mean... If you are inclined to, I'd just be curious. Like, don't you want to yeah. know? Because it's. I mean, honestly, what my dad just told you about the Greek Orthodox Church, I didn't even know about that until right now. That's crazy. Yeah. Seems like interesting, like, through line. Um, yeah. Because now I really want to know, like, you found out later. So it's like, did, um, did you wake up and tell somebody that? Like, you know what I'm saying? Or did somebody pull it out of you? There's so many different ways it could go. I, I, like I said, like even what my dad said, it was so long ago. Like, especially for me, like if I was only three or four. Like, all right, he's back. Okay. Yeah, no, um, his mother said she distinctly remembers uh, Robert, uh, you know, getting up one morning and saying, and she said also that it was after we had gone to the Greek Orthodox Church that had the uh, crying Virgin Mary portrait that uh, he was visited by Mary and she told him, I, I don't know, indirectly or I don't know how they did it, but um, that he, was, he would walk again. And he re she, his mother remembers Robert telling her that. Uh, he, and she said it was after that we visited the uh, portrait of the crying Virgin Mary. And I can't remember what town, I want to say either Cicero or Berwyn, but... Um, I remember the uh, the minister anointing him. Like I said, they would take a Q-tip and swab the portrait where the tears were coming out, and they would uh, do the uh, you know the crucifix uh, you know on his forehead. And uh, she said it was like shortly after that, either that night or sometime a little you know soon after, you know the subsequent days that uh, he felt like he had a he had a, a visitation from Mother Mary. That's crazy. Also, I know it's uh, it's making my 
spine tingle right now talking about it. It's very emotional. And then there was also another Mary thing involving the closet. Were you the one that put the the Virgin Mary in the closet when it was like smelling or something? Do you know about that? Oh, um, yeah. Um, there was something going on with, uh, yeah. Um, and I, was that your closet or your brother's? It was my closet. Was your closet? Yeah. There was a, some kind of an odor in the closet. And, um, I don't know if we put, I don't know if we put the statue or the little portrait, the picture. picture, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we set it in the closet and I think, was it then the, the smell was gone? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that too. Do you remember any of the other kind of spooky things that happened in the house? I heard a lot of weird stories just now. You know, every so often we feel like we might maybe hear noises or bumps in the night um, or other things that are, I don't even know how to describe it, not necessarily supernatural, just uh, strange coincidences and uh, things that have been moved, um, you know, stuff getting knocked over by accident and things that happen that you really can't explain, you know, uh, lamps or, you know, pictures hanging on the wall all of a sudden are laying on the floor, stuff like that. The spice rack, and um, we had a mirror fall off a wall about four months ago. It's just, I don't know if it's just bad luck, coincidence, or what it is. But, yeah, on occasion, we do have stuff like that happen. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Okay. All right. You're welcome. Have a good one. So as the interview went on, Rob and I ended up talking about some other things that have happened to him that are completely unrelated to everything that went down when he was a kid. And it turns out he actually had some experiences later on while working at a hotel. And I'm going to include this story. I think it's in some ways related to his belief. And quite frankly, I find it very interesting. But I also feel compelled to put some kind of trigger warning on here because it does include descriptions of suicide. So I just want to give anybody a heads up that does not want to hear that topic for whatever reason, you could go ahead and skip ahead. Um, but he does briefly describe these things in detail. Uh, I, I was 25 at the time, and I was a front desk supervisor. And we had an unfortunate situation where um, basically a guest committed suicide in one of our rooms. And it was it was a really... It, it wasn't... It, it was dark the way he did it. Yeah. I don't know how, how much detail you want. Um, but basically he had hung himself in the room and in hotel rooms, I'm, I'm sure you've stayed in many, they are specifically designed so that that doesn't happen. (laughs) Um, yeah, like that's literally a design choice. Why it, so like the next time if you're in a hotel room, if you look around the ceiling, there's almost never anything that you can hang off of on purpose because of that reason. So you may be wondering how he did it. Well, in the hotel I, I worked at, the closets had a really weird design. So basically there was a wall where like a, a, a track door, like a sliding door could sit on, but the, it didn't go all the way to the ceiling. There was like a, like a two or three foot gap between the top where the track runs and then where the ceiling is. So basically he, he put the rope over that opening, had the closet open 
and then was on his knees and like leaned into it. So sometimes police get a little too friendly with hotel staff and they, they basically told us like all the details that we like literally should not know. Um, so they were like, yeah, we found the like Home Depot receipts of where he got the rope from. We found, we, you know, like he apparently took a bunch of pills and drank a whole bottle of vodka before he did it. So basically like the way he did it was he set himself up and then because of all the stuff he took, he passed out into it and then strangled himself that way. Um, but before he did that, the other thing he did was he threw the deadbolt on the hotel door and then he also took spare rope and like basically took the deadbolt and like tied it against the wall. So like he couldn't open the door. So like he, he was adamant about doing this. Like he, he went out of his way so he couldn't be rescued. Um, so the next morning, obviously it's past checkout time. So we go to check on him. Um, well, you, we are not able to open a deadbolted door. Well, like with a key you have to actually drill the door open. <laughs> so that's what we had to do. And that's when we found him. So obviously police come, they handle their part. We handle our part. We take the room out of service. And then my job manager's like, we'll, we'll get the room clean before we sell it to anybody, which before anyone can occupy it. And we're like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense. <laughs> so that whole process happens. And it's the first night that we're selling the room again. And the first person we, so like the staff knows what happened in that room. So it was like an unspoken rule that we treated that room as a last cell. So it's like the very last person to come to the hotel is the person that gets stuck with that room. So that situation happens. And the lady we send up, we're like, you know, we're, we're like, oh yeah, here's your room key. You know, let us know if you need anything, et cetera, et cetera. So she goes up and within 10, 15 minutes, we get a phone call right away. She's like, hey, um, there's nothing physically wrong with the room, but I don't like this room. Like, there's something with it. I just can't stay here. Can I get another room? And we're like, well, you know, unfortunately, like, we can't do anything. Blah, blah, blah. She's like, that's okay. I'll just go to a different hotel. <laughs> and this pattern happens for a week. Every single person we send up there either immediately tells us I can't stay in this room. There's something about this room that like, I, I don't know what it is. I can't stand it. And then in addition to that, the people who do stay in the room are writing bad reviews about the room. And we got a couple comments where they're like, uh, something's wrong with your bathroom doors. They keep opening in the middle of the night or like we keep hearing noises in the rooms. There's something wrong. So we're getting all these bad reviews. Like what's going on? Like, <laughs> like I was like, Room's haunted. <laughs> That's what's going on. So um, the a lot of the uh, housekeeping staff are uh, immigrants from Mexico, and including the housekeeping manager. So she goes out of her way and puts the room out of service without telling our general manager on their lunch break, because all the housekeepers do one lunch break together. They go into the room and hold a prayer service like a literal prayer service. And then they keep the room out of service and keep a Bible open in the room overnight. The next day she puts the room back in service, takes the Bible out, no more complaints. So Rob, I'm a little confused because 
in the very beginning, you told me that you're an atheist. Not only that, you're an atheist as a direct result of these stories that you're going to tell me from your life. But I can't help but notice that almost all of these stories revolve around a religious person doing something in a way that it seems like you believe had an effect. Um, I think almost all of the stories involve that. And you yourself had this miraculous recovery from this debilitating disease. I guess I'm just confused because like all of these stories seem to support the opposite side that you claim to believe in, you know? Um, I, I can't help but notice a contradiction here. So I guess I'm just wondering like, do you believe in this stuff? Like what, what is it that you believe in? So my personal perspective is that I think religion itself is like, if you think back to like ancient civilizations, a lot of things we know now as science were attributed to religion, right? And I think it's just a matter of perspective. There are still things like to this day that we don't understand. We don't understand what happens after we die. We don't understand like what happens when we see these things because half the time people don't believe you. So I feel like religion is a way to give you perspective and sort of like an explanation of what's happening to you in a community that will believe your stories. And, you know, like I'm by no means an expert, but my experiences to me prove that this stuff exists. And, you know, if religion makes you comfortable and helps you explain these things, like by all means, do what you need to do. But for me, like, I know these things are real. I don't necessarily need religion to, to sort of help me or guide me in, in those beliefs. It's hard to describe my personal like recovery as anything but miraculous, right? But it's placing that label on me feels almost like a burden in a lot of ways because, you know, people will look to my situation and be like, that is proof God exists, right? And as an atheist, like, that's hard for me to swallow in a way because you're putting me on this pedestal that I can't possibly, you know, guarantee, like, yes, God did this to me. Uh, it, for all I know, like, I could just be lucky. Or, you know, I could have some weird variant of whatever happened to me because a lot of the things that happened to me don't line up with, like, the traditional diagnosis of CIDP. Um, in, in terms of, like, the thing I saw in my closet and the things breaking, you know, I, you know, I believe in the existence of spirits and, and ghosts and things of that nature. Yeah, to me... You know, like, we're basically, like, humans are almost like uh, machines, right? Like, we have a computer, which is our brain. We take in oxygen. We're a combustion engine. Engines are still hot after you turn them off, right? So that could just be, you know, residual energy. Um, and to people in, that are religious, I, I think they don't like the, the idea of ghosts because that means you're not guaranteed to go to the afterlife, right? depending on your religion. Those people are seen as, you know, well, they're demons because you can only have demons if, if you're not in heaven or hell, you're a demon. Or that means you're stuck in purgatory, which means like you did something wrong. And that's another reason I don't like 
the concept of being considered a miracle. Because if I do, then they're like, this, this is a gift, right? But then it adds moral implications to my life. So if I, if I sin, is God going to take that away from me? Am I going to lose the, my ability to walk? <laughs> that's, that's like something I have to live with. And it, it's not, I, I don't, I don't know else to describe it, but it's, <clears throat> so I'm a gamer. I don't know if you've played Dead Space before, um, but the remake just came out. I just replayed it. And there's actually a line at the very end of the game that I found to be very profound to my situation. And it, I don't know the exact wording of it, but basically they say a miracle to those that aren't ready is a nightmare. And that I think describes exactly how I feel about my situation. I don't know what caused it. I don't know why I'm better and other people have to suffer. <laughs> and now I have to deal with those implications of if it is a miracle, if I do something bad, is it gonna go away? You know, or do I have to live up to certain other people's standards to make sure that I deserve this miracle? And like, why was I chosen and somebody else not? All right, I wanna thank Rob so much for telling us that story. I also want to thank his dad for talking to me as well. This was a really interesting one to me. My main interest in making this show is basically curiosity of how people end up reacting to these things that they witness with their own eyes that implies big changes to our understanding of reality and the rules of our universe. It's always interesting to hear how people end up reshaping their beliefs or not reshaping them at all. I think for me personally, I always find it a little sad and bizarre when a person is completely atheist except for believing in dark spirits and evil. I feel like that's such a grim way to exist, to believe that there's nothing out there except for evil. And while I personally do not think that's true, and I also think that that's a very grim way to go through life, I also understand how Rob ended up feeling that way. Even though that quote is from a video game, I think it's very profound and really helped me understand how growing up witnessing the things that he did and going through the things that he did ended up shaping his worldview into what it is today. I think if I've learned anything from the making of this show, it's that you can never really understand what's going on inside of another person. You'll never fully understand their perspective, no matter how much you think you can put yourself in their shoes. Anyway, thank you to Rob for telling us that story. Thank you to his dad one more time. And once again, thank you for listening. This episode was called The Miracle Child, and you've been listening to Otherworld. Otherworld is hosted and executive produced by myself, Jack Wagner. Our theme song is by Cobra Man. The soundtrack of this episode is by Juice Jackal and North Americans. Editing and engineering by Theo Schaefer. The artwork for our show is by Cul-de-Sac Studios. This is an independent show, so please show us your support by subscribing, leaving a five-star review, and telling your friends. 
If you want to hear more and support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherworld. We have a bunch of bonus episodes up there and there's much more to come. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at otherworldpod on Instagram and Twitter. And finally, if you or somebody you know has experienced something paranormal, supernatural, or unexplained, you could send us that story at stories at otherworldpod.com. 